regular podcast listeners will know that I'm a huge Frankenstein nerd, having written my own adaptation of Frankenstein, which I talked about and gossiped about on a previous podcast. And one of the things that I always find amusing about Frankenstein is that you have to correct people all the time. People go, Frankenstein's not the monster. Frankenstein's the scientist who creates the monster. Now, Nick Sands is the artistic director of Remy Bumpo Theater here in Chicago and is further confusing this issue because not only is he playing Victor Frankenstein, the title character of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, he is also playing the creature. Nick, what the hell are you doing to us? I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing to myself. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. Thanks for subscribing, streaming, or downloading and listening to us on your computer or tablet or phone. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, number 617, Remy Bumpo's Frankenstein. Nick Sands is the artistic director of Chicago's Remy Bumpo Theater and is currently playing both Victor Frankenstein and The Creature in the Nick Deer adaptation of Mary Shelley's classic novel, which opens this week and runs through November 17th, 2018. Just before he went into tech rehearsals last week, Nick sat down with me to talk about how rehearsals are going and how the power of this tale of monstrousness fits into Remy Bumpo's mission of great language driving great ideas. It's one of the strangest uh, processes we've ever been through. This is the Nick Deere version uh, from the Royal National Theatre. And uh, we seem, we, as far as we can find out, we are the only company to re- do the pl- this version from 2011 and do what they did at the National Theatre, which, of course, starred Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Leland Miller. And uh, they rotated the two lead roles. And we're doing the same thing. And if you watch the videos from the, the RNT website, um, uh, Danny Boyle and Nick Deere swear that they didn't do this on purpose. They just had two great actors they thought it would be great in the role so let's just do this thing and see what happens Um, and when we picked it up we went this makes so much sense that there's a duality between these two characters the creature and the creator and being able to flip them is a really fascinating not only um, conceptual process but just as a process as an actor um, it's really great and Greg Matthew Anderson and myself are are swapping off every day Um, we're obviously very very different actors Um, Greg's uh, uh, shall we say at least 10 years younger than myself Um, and, uh, uh, and so we get to create very very different creatures and that's where it started we wanted to change people's minds about what the creature is. It doesn't have to be big, a, a as it isn't in the novel, a big lumbering thing. You yes, know, it's no, a very right. erudite being that finds an identity. And in this version, particularly, it start the, it starts from the birth of the creature. There's no nothing before that. Yeah. So it's from the point of view of the creature. So that was the first entry point. But we found our victors have shifted and changed, and they're equally different um, and really fascinating to do it because it, they're bouncing off our creatures. Right. However where the creature goes and so as as a way of uh, exploding the story not only telling it from the point of view of the creature but also showing that our expectations of what the creature is have been really shaped by popular culture since yeah. 1931 and the release of the Boris Karloff. Yeah. But even from, you know, I've been doing huge amounts of research into Mary Shelley, as you do, um, <laughs> but also into the stage adaptations of this 
amazing novel. The know. first one was only like five, seven years after the novel was published. Absolutely, five years, 1823, yeah. and yeah. was called Presumption, or The Fate of Frankenstein, and it's where we get the lumbering green giant from. Yeah. You know, in that version, the creature is... Uh, doesn't speak. Right. The creature was actually in a blue body stocking. We start painting its body already, mm. it, which is a really interesting, sh weird sort of uh, place of um, cultural uh, negotiation in that it moves from looking like, oh, we're trying to express dead flesh, into expressing kind of racial difference. Mm. And, I mean, you look at the 1931 film, watch it again. I'm just telling you, watch it again yeah. for the iconography. I'm just saying he kind of gets hung up on a cross and burnt at the end. Yeah, and I'm going, yeah. 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 So, um, you know, really fascinating uh, that each decade of, of Frankenstein interpreters have done a different thing with, the, with that being. And that's sort of great to, yeah. look at, to play with. And so even from that period, and Mary Shelley saw that version, loved it. It made the novel popular. Up to that moment, there were only like 460 copies in circulation. Right. Then her, you know, her father went, oh, it's not a scandal, it's a success, and threw out this quick paperback version. Right. And then it became, everybody got to read it, and then she republished it in 1831 and rewrote it slightly, changed the character of Victor slightly, and even includes the word presumption mm. in the text, mm. uh, which wasn't there before. Yeah, so. It's fascinating. It's just a fascinating topic. It's endlessly fascinating, yeah. and 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 you talk about how every decade kind of shapes it metaphorically. You know, for mm -hmm. the, the for the the central story of this story of creation, or the modern Prometheus, which is Mary Shelley's um, subtitle, right. um, and what that represents to new uh, uh, the new generations. I, I, I'm I'm I've been struck recently because we have so many friends who uh, teach Shakespeare in prisons, oh, and yeah. um, and I and I and I think about. I would love to see this play done in a prison because it deals with one of the fundamental questions of certainly my adaptation. I'm not quite so sure about Nick Deers, but probably mm -hmm. um, it deals with uh, uh, well, uh, are you a, uh, you're a monster because you are treated monstrously. Yes, you know, and I think that is a lot of what we do to our prison population. Right. We treat them monstrously, and even we treat segments of our society monstrously, and then lock them up. Um, and getting back to your production, this double casting, the right. dual casting thing, seems to also address this issue of, well, who is the monster Absolutely. in the story of Frankenstein? Absolutely. And, you know, and, and people more, more recently obviously see Victor as the person who is actually going against everything that is sort of morally correct right. uh, without responsibility, not answering the fact that he is a parental figure who abandons a child. Right. Uh, that child gets into trouble and start, and, you know, particularly in the way we're looking at it, uh, and the design of our production is also furthering that in that we've decided that the creature is born as a blank slate. So he is actually going to be, we're using something that sort of adapts Buto theatre, mm. so he is white. Mm. and colors get added to him as he goes through the world. And so he begins as this literally as a blank slate. And so where he is, as he says in this version, he is good at the art of assimilation. He, watch, he studies mankind. Yeah. And what does he learn? He learns, as he lists it, he learns how to debase, humiliate, um, he learns how to hate, he learns how to ruin, um, and he then finally learns how to lie. And that's the biggest tragedy that he's a completely honest character um, until Victor lies to him. Right. 
and you know, and that's a fascinating thing to watch people. And you watch, I mean, he's a child, and you watch him literally grow up at lightning speed. You know, and in a space of a year, he goes from being zero to twenty-one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. and 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 so it's sort of being able to tell that story and watch somebody t- take in the world that way, who is intelligent and smart but doesn't have the language to talk about it until he finds that voice, which is you know again very different from myself and Greg. But I do think it's, uh, we've taken as that as the mantra for us is that monsters are not born, they are made. Yeah. That is our story. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, made and unmade, mm-hmm. which is, you know, on, on and I th- I'm, I'm going to misquote this, um, Susan Wolfson, who did one of the great annotated uh, versions of the, uh, published in 2012, um, really great edition. And she talks about made or unmade on the, mm, I'm going to say that the, the arms of human sympathy. Mm. You know, it's like, if you find sympathy, that may stop you being a monster. It may take you in the opposite direction. But mm. sympathy meaning not just somebody who understands that you're in pain, but sympathy in, in terms of like a magnet has sympathy, you know, that you're working in tandem with something. There's a connection. You, you find yes. a connection. Yeah. Communion, yeah, connection, communion, uh, you know, balance or whatever you want to think of it. <laughs> yeah. And that's what you need in the world. You're looking for something. Somebody connects with you, maybe the opposite, like the creature who wants a companion. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that's driving a lot of the way we're looking at the show. And yes, the metaphor of the two, the two central roles being able to shift um, just expands that in different ways. Well, and, and I noticed that you have, um, as I said to you the other day, a star is shorn. You have completely <laughs> shaved your head. Yes. And a marvelously shaped noggin it is, may I say. Well, thank you very much. Yes, first time in my life I did this. Uh, my wife isn't thrilled. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I usually, I'm, I'm kind of an actor known for having a lot of hair. I think the last time you saw me, I had a huge amount of hair for yeah. doing Bro, yeah, and beard and everything. So this is like uh, this is like nothing I've ever done as an actor, mm-hmm. you know, being a Shakespearean actor and doing all those things. So this is sort of fascinating. This gets to be like playing Caliban as opposed to playing Prospero, um, and Caliban has a lot of things in common with the creature. Um, I think you really will like my adaptation. Then. <laughs> well, good, good, good. But no, I just it's 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 this is push you push yourself through different. Um, uh, gateways as an actor every time you want to do something I mean I always believe in that every play you do is a huge journey into the unknown otherwise why are you doing it you need to learn something we need to be curious and we need to find new territory so this is um, this is really fascinating because my brother my older brother has cerebral palsy Um, I you know grew up with him uh, and around a lot of people who are dealing with disabilities of different types um, people on the spectrum Um, and so for me this is what I can feed into this character um, in different ways, and even having something like Victor, and is Victor on the spectrum in the other way? You know, he is somebody who doesn't fit in. He is, you know, he's a genius in different ways, but he's not a good communicator, and you know, and uh, is uh, he loses his mother early, uh, you know, f- from this you know, scarlet fever in the novel, um, and he doesn't communicate with his father, and so he's an abandoned child in a different way. Yeah. And so it's fascinating to push those things in different ways into shows and say, okay, I'm going to go into a place that I've never been before because this is a creature I've never lived inside before. Well, yes, this, this um, idea of transformation is, is so interesting, but I, I guess I don't know whether this is a warning or whether, whether this will sell tickets, but are we, are, if you come out birth as, birthed as a tabula rasa, are, are we going to have to see your little Frankie? <laughs> yes, you may well. <laughs> Hello there. This is Rob Richards, theater instructor at Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire. And you're listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Where can you RSC the RSC? 
You can see Reduced Shakespeare in your own home by owning your very own copy of Pop-Up Shakespeare, written by me and Reed Martin and illustrated by the marvelous Jenny Mazels. It's on sale worldwide, and you can find links to both Amazon and independent bookstores in the U.S. and the U.K. on our website. Our 2018-2019 tour of William Shakespeare's Long Lost First Play Abridged, The Ultimate Christmas Show Abridged, and The Complete Works of William Shakespeare Abridged, Revised, continues this week in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, then continues on to 25 more cities in 18 different states, featuring 11 different actors and three different stage managers. As always, the very best way to stay up to date about all of our worldwide performance dates is to sign up for the Reduced Reader, our email newsletter. Go to ReducedShakespeare.com and click on the link to subscribe and check out our touring page for specific box office venue and ticket information. And now back to my conversation with Nick Sands, currently playing the creature and Victor in the Remy Bumpo production of Frankenstein. There's so much that we can continue to talk about about the play Frankenstein, but can, tell me a little bit about Remy Bumpo, and it's because you because your not your background, but you do a lot of Shakespeare, um, yeah. um, and Remy Bumpo has a kind of a, a literary um, emphasis. Is that right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the word is our um, uh, mantra, really. The, the the play is the most important thing for us. Our, we do we plays that focus on large ideas and with great language. That's all we look for. Which means the spectrum of plays is huge that we can. We've been known for doing Stoppard and Albie and uh, and Shaw are our big guys, but we've also done uh, Fugard and we've done Brecht and we've done you know Pirandello recently. Um, and the other part of that is looking at literary adaptations. Yeah. You know, so there's great language in other places. Mm-hmm. So we've uh, we've done at Great Expectations and we've done Northanger Abbey and here we are doing Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, so and we've just done our first commission, which will open our following season, oh, cool. uh, which we haven't announced to the public yet, so we, I'm not saying what it is. Right. Um, but uh, looking at great language as the driving of great ideas and how we express that and language is power, language is tools, language is weapons, language is seduction, language is, is the way we want something and for acting I mean that's all you're doing is like I need to put my needs into words that's what gives you drama and so the more great the language and most people think great language means long sentences that everybody speaks beautifully you know it's sure or it's wild or it's right. stop up and last year we did the American premiere of Debbie Tucker Green's Hang and she uses language in a completely different way and the way l- brilliantly poetically succinctly that sort of half formed and suddenly struggling to find the right word that will shift the world slightly so I get heard when I'm a person without power and so you know just looking at the way language is now being used in so many different ways it's sort of fascinating the fact that uh, you know our politicians speak at an eighth grade level yeah. is, is just sort of saddening to us so we want to do it's play. also offensive to eighth graders but yeah, <laughs> well this is yeah. true so we do something like Gore Vidal's you know the best man where politicians spoke in full sentences yeah. you know from the 19th 60s. So, you know, we're looking at plays where we can we can put something into the zeitgeist that says, look how we would like to better ourselves. Look at public discourse. Look at how can we get into a conversation with our community where language is shifted and we give people tools to talk about the pain they're in, right. the joy they want to express, the loves in their lives. And that's the sort of, we want to do theatre that even if it's hard, even it takes you to a dark place, Ultimately, what you come out of the theatre, even in a play like The Goat or Who is Sylvia that we did, yeah. the last moment is this sort of pushing through to transformation and putting through to enlightenment and leaves you, th- even when you go through a play like when we did Our Class about uh, a, a Polish pogrom, you know, and the whole basically of the story of Poland in the 20th century, coming to terms with what happened in the Second World War. Um, it, it gives you a sort of feeling of those t- that the two people come out at the end and 
live with the memories of what it meant to survive that century give you hope in humanity. And that's really important to us. So those are the plays we sort of do, I think. And, and so, yeah, Remy, Remy has got this reputation of being literary, but it's literary for a higher ground. You know, it's like, what does literature give us? The journey into exciting places we've never been before. Well, and what I also love about you, uh, how you talk about literature is that literature is not a product, it's a process. Yes. You know, and writers have to struggle with finding exactly the right words, and I often find the best actors, that I, the actors I love most are the ones that struggle to say the thing they're trying to say, even when they're speaking Shakespeare. Yeah. I mean, not always struggling like Shatner trying <laughs> to find the right words, but you know, um, um, you know, finding finding the word that fits better than the word your words you're rejecting. Yeah. Um, and I and I and I, I for me that approach to literature is like catnip for an actor. Well, you think about you know what we what we look at. Um, uh, modern culture right now and the the idea of slam poetry and the idea mm -hmm. of being able to do poetry duels which is not new I mean Moliere's court mm -hmm. was full of dueling and, and you had to rhyme mm -hmm. and if you lost you basically lost your life uh, because you were banned from court. It was like a word duel. And so the ability to use language like that is so exciting for us. And you watch people like that, and everybody gets excited uh, to watch somebody who can do it in the moment. And for actors to be able to take a, 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 a playwright's words and bring that alive, even when it's Shakespeare, when you know it's written beautifully and you know it's there, but to fight for that adrenalized brilliance in the moment. I mean, you look at Romeo and Juliet and everybody goes, oh yeah, beautiful. And you go, no. Most of the time they fail miserably to say the right thing, those two. I mean, they, they are horrible <laughs> teenagers. They've got death wish. They're going, oh my goodness, I'm <laughs> bad at this. I'm bad at being a lover. And then for five <laughs> minutes in the middle of that play, they say the perfect thing to each other. And they just go, and you go, Wow, and unless you realize that that's unusual for those two characters, that they get it right at that moment, which is why they fall in love, and language enables that, then the rest of the play doesn't make sense. You watch Romeo saying the word banished 50 million times in that scene, because <laughs> he can't get over it, but he says it again and again because he's just in a rut. He hasn't got another word for it, he doesn't know how to express it differently. He's just stuck on this term that he can't comprehend, because he can't get it inside his head that he can never see her again. And that's a brilliant way with language, and Shakespeare's so good at that. Mm. But that's naturalism, that's, that's realistic use of language. You know, I look at something, I mean, I'm a fight choreographer, and I look at the way Shakespeare shapes these things. My favorite example is Othello, mm. and the way Othello kills Desdemona. And, you know, if you actually look at the text, it's hyper-realistic. And people said, get up, they usually cut the line, the production I just saw, cuts the line where Desdemona comes back to life and says, I killed myself. And everybody goes, well, how did she come back to life? She got strangled. And you go, she wouldn't, if you got strangled, she wouldn't be able to do it. Well, that tells you she wasn't strangled. Mm. It's just, he starts strangling her, but he's interrupted by Amelia, so it moves from strangling, a ritual death, which is what he's trying to do, to trying to smother her with the pillow and keep her quiet and keep this going while talking over his shoulder to somebody who's having a conversation through the door. And it's not working because this woman isn't staying still. She's struggling yeah, yeah. to stay alive. So actually what he should do is pull a dagger and stab her yeah. because you've got the wedding sheets, so you get blood on the sheets, yeah. and then he rolls her up in the sheets. Yeah. And so she's rolled over away from people, and then when Amelia gets in finally and rolls her back, you've got blood on the wedding sheets, and you've got somebody who is bleeding out, yeah. who comes to consciousness, still has the ability to speak, and dies from that. And that takes 
the length that Shakespeare has written. It takes three and a half minutes. Mm. And he's actually written that into the play. And you go, just look at why that might be the case for real. Don't find a reason for it not to be real. You know, and I love that sort of stuff. I'm just a nerd for that. Talk about Frankenstein. I'm a nerd full stop. I'm, I'm a nerd for literature. You know, that's why I now in Remy Bumper run Remy Bumpo, because, you know, I just love digging into plays that way and saying, why did the playwright do that? Then find out why we need to do that. Not like, ah, I can't do it. Let's do something else. The playwright rules. Our job is to get out of the way and tell the story because we chose the play for that story, not to tell our story. It's, it's the playwright's story. Why it was written at that time, in that place, by that person, to say what? And that, can we have a conversation with that? And, can, and our job is to choose it because we believe it now has something important to say, even if it's, in, even if it's the wrong thing to say, and it's in debate with what we want to say. Right. You know, so you're not, you're not, you don't want to say Richard III was a great guy. You want to say why is he bad and what does he represent now? And it's the same with any modern play, whether it's a Stoppard play, whether it's an Austin Titchener play, you know, all those things. We look for a play that says it moves us. Why is it moving us now? Because we want to have this conversation. You know, and that's great. That's, you know, and we want you to have the conversation, which is why we at Remy Bumpo, you know, really want the actors and the director to be at the talkbacks so you get to talk with the artists and be in the conversation with them and have this dialogue over art. What's the point of art except not to create dialogue, to talk at a dinner table about it, to go to a theatre and talk about it, to be involved in a community conversation where art is the catalyst, not the end of the conversation. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Comedy Podcast. For more information about Remy Bumpo's production of Frankenstein with Nick Sands and Greg Matthew Anderson alternating each night as Victor and the Creature, go to remybumpo.org. Then let us know what Frankenstein represents to you either on our website or on our podcast page on Facebook or via Twitter or even the old-fashioned way. Send us an email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can find our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSC Podcast or general visual reduction on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company and more literate reduction on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener. Thanks as always to Tabula Rasa Matthew Croak, web services by Ginger Power Limited, music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout out this week goes to Terry M. Russell. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to Rob Richards, Chair of Theater and Dance Department at Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire, and also the original creature in my adaptation of Frankenstein. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. I'm Austin Titchener, 617-1851sts of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. So directors and actors should respect the text. What a radical notion. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> This podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.